Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University and welcome to class. Hey everyone, this is Sean and just finished up an interview with a, a very cool guest, Martin Sawa. He, you know, has a crazy story when we get into it and I really hope that a lot of you check out his book and read into it a little more because we just scratched the surface in this interview, but he's truly chasing the American dream. He moved here, uh, well, his, his family moved here from Ukraine because they were, you know, victimized in World War II under that, you know, regime of Stalin and Hitler. And, you know, it's pretty inspiring to see a guy from Ukraine who moved to a small town, Wisconsin, and, you know, he's made some incredible uh, accomplishments, some incredible feats in his life. Uh, Garrett, what do you think about today's interview? Yeah, I think it's inspiring. And I don't even know how old he is. I mean, I know that's obviously not a great question to ask, but he did seem someone that's a little bit older in age. And, um, you know, he's constantly evolving, constantly learning and trying to be better in all aspects of the life that he chooses to and wants to. And I think that's something that we should, you know, look up to and uh, admire about him. uh, Because I think a lot of people stop growing and they stop learning and they stop trying to better themselves. So um, credit to him for doing that. And Uh, It was a really fun interview, really enjoyed talking to him about his life and, you know, learning the culture and the the different things that he brought over here to America. And I really liked when he talked about going back home, even though it was a lot later in life that he wanted to, unfortunately missed his mom and his dad, but um, just the things that he saw and that he learned about his heritage and his culture and made him appreciate being in America all, all the more. Yeah, not only has he embraced that, you know, lifelong learning mentality, but I think he's also embraced like a a lifelong of overcoming adversity mentality. And it was really cool to hear him now that he's written this memoir about his own life. I think that it gave him a lot of time to reflect on what he's had to overcome and kind of figure out the mindset that he wants to have moving forward. And it's really cool to talk to someone at that stage in their life. And it's something that, you know, I hope rubs off on myself and something that the listeners can appreciate too. You know, he had one saying that I think a lot of you have probably heard before, you fall down seven times, you get up eight. But then he also said something pretty inspiring to me today was that love can survive physical death. And I think that a lot of us know that, but you know, right away, uh, those initial moments of grieving the loss of a loved one, you feel really helpless and you feel like your time is over with that person. And you know, not to get into religion or anything like that, but you know, just reassuring yourself that love can and does survive physical death, I think is something uh, that can be very comforting moving forward and something that I'm going to try to keep with me. Uh, To end, as we're going to continue on doing this, a quote I got for you guys are, you are your most valuable asset. Your life, your potential, and your possibilities are the most precious things that you have. And I thought that was very relevant today as, uh, Martin still continues to do that today. And as we mentioned, continues to learn and grow. And also we didn't mention, but whether he realizes it or not, him writing that book and sharing his story is helping other people out there that have suffered or gone through the same things that he has, um, you know, and that he's helping them evolve and helping them learn and figure out more about themselves and, um, you know, doing some self-reflection based off of what he has learned and the experiences he has gone through. So pretty cool. Yeah. It's not only, you know, listening to his story, it's, figuring out how those life lessons can be applied to yourself and, you know, learning from others is something that's so essential to, you know, living a happy life because you can make a lot of mistakes in life. It's a lot easier if you can, you know, kind of learn from others and, you know, take advice that they've gathered along the way. So I really enjoyed today's interview. Hope you guys do too. Let's kick it on over to Martin Sawa. Hey everyone. 
we want to let you in on a tremendous opportunity. Garrett and I have recently become sales reps for Verbero, an unrivaled hockey equipment and workout apparel company. Verbero utilizes a direct-to-consumer approach that removes the middleman and drives prices lower than any other leading brand in the industry without sacrificing quality. Just one example is the gloves, which are already being worn in the NHL. Verbero's fully customized gloves with team names, team logos, player names, and numbers are only $90 a pair before the discount for using our codes. A rival competitor CCM base pair without customization is about $200 online. With over 25 former NHL players and over 20 of the top women's players within Verbero's powerful rep force, it's the only brand that is ran by people who understand the game better than anybody else. You can get an additional 5% off your entire order by using code GILES, that's all caps, G-I-L-E-S, in the checkout under discounts. Thinking about upgrading jerseys for your team? Verbero has amazing customization and can get you looking better than every other team in the league. To save even more on bulk orders, team orders, or even set up a team store, contact me on social media or my email, Giles at Outlook.com. That's S-E-A-N-G-I-L-E-S at Outlook.com. Today's guest is someone who has personally experienced the highs and lows of chasing the American dream. He's a first-generation immigrant from Ukraine. He's a former real estate broker and current author of his book, The Other Side of Success, Money and the Meaning in the Golden State. He joins us today to discuss his journey from humble beginnings to self-made wealth. Please welcome to the podcast, Martin Sawa. Hi, Sean. Hi, Garrett. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. Martin, we always ask about our guest childhood, but yours is probably the most unique we've seen so far. Your parents immigrated to the United States from Ukraine, where they lived under the brutal regimes of Stalin and Hitler. They settled in a small town in Wisconsin. What was your childhood like, and were you raised with a Ukrainian culture or more American? Well, they they arrived at Ellis Island with my sister, then two years old, and a couple of suitcases. So we were they were resettled in this uh, little town in rural Wisconsin, and uh, I really didn't get to speak English well until actually I started in, in first grade. So we were kind of isolated, and this was uh, during the era when people didn't know what a Ukrainian was, and it wasn't that like a Russian, and you know, the Cold War and all of that. Uh, but my parents, their, their perspective was, after living under Stalin and Hitler, that the, the worst of circumstances they expected to encounter here went really better in the best of times they had there. So it was, uh, that was their mindset. So later in your life, you actually went back to Ukraine. Um, and had you become Americanized when you went back to U- Ukraine radio- later in your life? Were there things that you missed, things that you brought with you? Can you just kind of compare and contrast uh, the two different cultures and I guess what you appreciate about either side? Yeah, I wasn't a really late in life. I was uh, 60 years old uh, that I went back to Ukraine. I planned on going back many years earlier with my parents, but uh, until um, the the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed, it was kind of pointless because you'd just be shadowed by the KGB and you couldn't really go anywhere. Uh, so af- after that happened, then my dad got sick and he passed. Then my mom got sick and she passed. And then I 
kind of forgot about. And then I decided I better make this trip because time was running out. All of the living witnesses during what happened before and during World War II were, you know, dying. I mean, they were 90, 100 years old. So uh, I felt it incumbent to go over there and I found their home sites where they were born and got to speak with uh, some of the elders who knew my grandparents. And uh, it, was, it was a great trip. And then I spent some time in Kiev and uh, visited several sites of you know atrocities that happened uh, during the war, uh, inflicted by both Hitler and Stalin, and uh, discovered that where they lived, it was kind of the epicenter of the area between Berlin and Moscow, where there was the greatest kill mass killing of civilians in human history, basically in the 30s and early 40s. So it was quite an experience. And obviously, I appreciate it all the more, you know, what we had in America. Yeah, it's nice being able to go back and see your roots. And I'm sure your parents instilled a lot of great values and you like hard work. Uh, can you take us through your journey? I think you told us earlier when you graduated high school, you moved right to Chicago, right, to start your life, correct? Yeah, there, there wasn't much to do. I mean, and so I, um, I, I went to college and uh, worked my way through college. And then uh, when I graduated, I moved to California. I, I had been out previously. I had uh, hitchhiked cross country solo and then taken drive-away cars. If you guys have ever heard of that. I haven't, uh, did you explain that? Yeah, uh, back then um, as, as a means of transporting autos where let's say you move from one coast to the other uh, and, uh, you know, the furniture movers, they take all your stuff, but didn't have really a way to transport your car. You'd pay a lot to have it, you know, basically put on a, put on a truck, uh, that you would, uh, go to a driveway agency and they'd hire young kids with a license and a clean record and give, give me a week to, to drive the car, deliver it, and uh, gave me money for gas and, it was like a free vacation. So, <laughs> so I did that too. And I got to see the country and, uh, and it was great. And when I came to California, I, I this is when I hitchhiked, I got a ride from, I, from San Bernardino all the way to Santa Monica. And the woman brought me off at the pier and at sunset and it was great. So that's kind of where the book opens. Uh, and, I was chasing the American dream and the California dream and any other dream I could think of. And the Pontiac GTO, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's crazy to think about hitchhiking now. I don't think that uh, people are as trusting as they are back then. <laughs> Were there ever any uh, scary situations getting into a stranger's car? Yeah, there was some close calls, but it, but it was a different day and age then. Uh, I get dropped off at like a major hitchhiking transfer point, maybe where two freeways come together or something, and there'd be a line of 20 kids. Uh, and so I'd always try to talk with the cutest girl because I know she'd get picked up first. That's true. So, you know, it was, it was pretty competitive. 
So it was your first job in door-to-door sales. And uh, how did that experience prepare you for later on when you got into you know, the high adrenaline stakes of selling high-rise office buildings and shopping malls? Uh, when, when I graduated from high school and moved to Chicago, I needed to make money to pay for school. And so I wound up being a door-to-door salesman. And I never done anything like that. And fortunately, I had a great mentor. I didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect. And so I, I learned the, the art and science of sales. And I have to say honestly, uh, later in life, when I sold high-rise office buildings, shopping malls, technology parks, the mega deals, uh, it was a difference in degree, but not in kind. What I learned that summer in Chicago selling uh, fuller brushes, uh, I applied later in life. So it was a great experience. But then uh, life set in, and when I moved to California, I got a real job, got married, had two stepkids and a baby on the way. And uh, I was just frustrated because I couldn't make money to support my family. And so I quit my real job. I was a city planner at the time and vowed never to go back again. And I got a real estate license. And when, when you have to do it, uh, <laughs> uh, necessity is a, is a good motivating factor for overcoming adversity. What a time to do it, though, too. Like you took a major risk and obviously it was kind of, take the risk and jump and go for it or, you know, possibly not be able to support your family. But you talk about, you know, having a wife, a kid on the way and not being able to support them. And you kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word or terms, you put all your eggs in one basket and just went for it. Yeah, you have to, you have to take chances. Um, The area of commercial real estate I got in was investment sales of, you know, larger properties. So there, there are other uh, venues within the field like commercial leasing or property management where you either get a paycheck or you can start getting commissions you know, within a month or a couple of months. But investment sales took forever. You might work six months on a deal uh, and then may not close at all. So it was high risk. and uh, But I swore I was never going back. So I wound up getting credit cards and I got a whole bunch of them and would, you know, pay one for the other to pay, pay our living expenses. So, uh, luck was almost the year after I started that the commission check started rolling in and eventually paid off my credit cards. You talk about taking risk and a central theme of your book is about putting skin in the game and the business or in business and in life. So what does that mean for you? And can you kind of elaborate on, you know, what you mean by putting skin in the game? Yeah, it's, it's a central kind of theme of the book. Uh, and it applies not only to business, but to really to any walk of life. Uh, just to give some examples, um, you've probably heard the story of the, the CEO who gets hired by a company and makes decisions based on short-term profitability and enhancing you know, his bonus and uh, other aspects of his contract. And eventually runs the company into the ground and 
um, but has no downside risk. You'll get a golden parachute. So that's an example of not having skin in the game. Or on a personal level, uh, you can be an anonymous internet troll and try to wreck people's lives. And as you guys get more successful, I'm sure that'll happen to you. And people who have no skin in the game, no downside risk. And it's, you know, that's what happens. When you have, uh, when the stakes are high and when you have downside risk, then that makes you get up in the morning and it makes you work weekends or it makes you do whatever it takes. And th that's always been my motivating factor because I never grew up as a kid with a passion to, you know, be a real estate developer. So that was, uh, that was kind of my story. It's funny you talk about <clears throat> short-term thinking and long-term because in this book that I'm actually reading, it's called No Excuses. They talk about how most successful people are long-term thinkers. Um, and they look in the future as far as they can to determine the kind of people they want to become and the goals that they want to achieve. And it's funny that you say that because obviously in short-term thinking, they may have goals, but they also are so fixated on what they can have and what they can achieve right now in the moment. And they can't look down and figure out like, if I put in work here every single day that I'll eventually get to what I want down the road. And again, they get so fixated on what they can have right now versus what they may be able to achieve later down the line. So I think that's very fascinating. You bring that up. Yeah. And you see the difference in, in some of the tech companies versus maybe a more traditional company where, you know, it pays dividends, it uh, distributes income, the tech company, We'll pull it back into R&D, uh, other things, always looking for the down the road, you know, whether it's waiting for Google to buy them or going public, but uh, deferring the immediate gratification for what it takes to set up the business properly and, you know, looking at long-term goals. So speaking of that, how would you define success? And was there ever a point that you had to change something in your life to meet this definition of successful? Yeah, at, at the time, this was all in, in retrospect. When I was writing the book and, and doing some personal projects and kind of trying to understand what I had done, you know, and giving in names or... Or, or techniques or whatever, but uh, the the success part in the world we live in, which is 21st century American capitalism, at least for the time being, uh, is is very materially oriented. So money becomes uh, the yardstick in virtually all cases, certainly in the world of business, uh, and. You know, the, the more you make or the higher your liquid net worth or whatever, you, you're a judge to be more, more successful. Uh, I was just trying to make money to first survive and then reach a level of material comfort. But then you always, you always want a little bit more. And then um, in, in the movie Wall Street, I don't know if you guys saw saw it or heard of it. Yeah, it was um, uh, Michael Douglas won the Academy Award. He portrayed a corporate raider in, you know, on Wall Street and 
And there was a kid, a kid, Bud, who sort of adopted him as his mentor. And, uh, and you make choices and uh, choices have consequences. So you, you can achieve great success in one domain, uh, but then fail in other domains of life. Uh, and, you know, and, and still be unhappy. So I think in retrospect, in, in the work I do, I, I think success means achieving tangible, worthwhile goals that make you a better person. And they're not abstract, they're, they're concrete. They involve milestones, specific performance objectives, uh, and which can be accomplished. And then you raise the stakes and continue on, or you auto-correct and change the goal. Uh, but but that's against the backdrop of your personal life. And my book, I, I, I was going to originally write sort of a more traditional business bio, uh, but that's been done so much. And you you have the hero, the protagonist. They have obstacles they overcome in business, but you rarely learn anything of the personal life or what, what they're really like behind closed doors. Uh, and I, I thought mine, because the two are really the related, you're not two different people. I thought it'd be more interesting to, you know, have the business side, but in alternating chapters, look also at the personal side and my struggle to go from like compartmentalizing and or running into major problems in my marriage with addiction to trying to integrate my life uh, and the components of my life and achieve true success. So. I think as you mentioned too, success, we can, you know, there's different forms of success. As you mentioned, there's success in a relationship and there's success in business and there's success of you know, a father and there's multiple different kinds of success. But I thought one of the most important things that you pointed out, and I've heard this before and the quote is who you become is more important than what you achieve. And I think that's awesome because you talk about in the process of the adversity and all the experiences that you go, go through and the knowledge that you're gaining at the end of that. And after you go through all of that and the things that you learn, about yourself and how to change and become a better person. I honestly think at the end of the day that that is the most important thing uh, versus the money or the fame or however you want to put success on it. To me, success is becoming a better person every single day um, and enjoying what you have and what you're doing. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. But again, one has to be careful in proselytizing because the particular young people today, they just, you know, they're attached to their gadgets and uh, audio and visual images. And what they see, you know, they believe. And uh, they, in many cases, just they have not been trained, you know, to cultivate discernment. So uh, when, when I talk to people on this level engaged, the first, the first and major question I ask them is, what do you believe to be true? You know, that's to find out what their baseline is. Uh, if you believe that life starts at zero and ends at zero, then that's very specific. And if you're going to be true to yourself, you're going to live life in a certain way. Uh, if you believe there is more to life than meets the eye, 
you're going to live in a different way. So you have to be honest with yourself and establish your baseline. And this is this is who you are. And that's how you're going to measure uh, the success in whatever domain you are. A lot of people don't think about that or they deny it. And then later on, they make some money and they become assholes. <laughs> I think that's an interesting point you bring up with the younger generation that has the gadgets and it's so easy to find information. It's so easy to find, you know, someone else's net worth. It's so easy to see, Oh, you know, this person's making this much money. They're doing so well. It's not very often that you have a lot of time to just kind of sit back, relax and think, you know, what, what makes me happy? What is something that, you know, true success and happiness to me go hand in hand. It's obviously not just, you know, the dollar sign at the end of the day, in my opinion. Yeah. But again, it's the definition varies. And if you're, again, if you're going to your gadget, you, you get information, you get more and you can process by many orders, but you get, you get less knowledge and you get no wisdom. And, and what's happening now, I mean, for the last 20, 30 years, uh, there, the coders have developed trillions of lines of code and algorithms and have embedded in their certain values that when AI becomes more and more prevalent, uh, these values have already been embedded over the decades. And you're going to be dealing with kind of a different world. And you got to be queer where you stand and who you are. You don't strike me as a guy that watches a lot of TV or movies, but uh, one movie that I did watch at school is The Social Dilemma, I think it's called. I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it. Uh, no. So it's basically what you just said. So they talk about the al algorithms in social media, such as Twitter or Instagram, and they find out like how much time you spend looking at a particular image. So if it's like athletes, and then that goes into the algorithm, how much time you spend looking at that. So then when you're looking at a picture, a video, the next video or picture that pops up is similar to what you've already watched to keep you more interested in what you're doing. So then it becomes like a huge black hole. If people ever tell you that, you know, they're watching YouTube or like TikTok and it's a black hole because you're watching some of uh, one video for three minutes and then you all of a sudden look at the clock and three hours have gone by. So those algorithms for keeping people attracted to their phones and all the stuff that in my opinion doesn't matter and is kind of bullshit is far more superior now. And like you said, AI is only going to continue to grow. Yeah. And the difference between now and, you know, historically is that a lot of this is in the hands of people who were in their twenties or early thirties. Whereas before this kind of life altering, you know, experience, whether it was through religious traditions or, you know, intellectually, you, you had older and wiser people. <laughs> and, you know, literally, uh, there's 20-somethings that can, you know, expose the world to great achievements, but also put in great peril, and they have no idea what they're doing. They're, I, call, I, I say they're clever, but not wise. Yeah, and uh, it seems like you may have had to lean back on, you know, some older, wiser experience because the road wasn't always easy for you. I know that we talked a little bit beforehand. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, your second marriage and how you deal with the grief and recovery after a great personal loss? 
Yeah, so my, my first marriage, uh, I married a Native American woman. We were living in Oakland, which was kind of a racial melting pot at the time, uh, right across the bay from San Francisco. I started working in Oakland, but then moved to San Francisco as I moved up the ladder. Uh, and uh, we divorced, and then uh, about five, six years later, I remarried. And my second wife, she was a black woman from the rural South. And like me, uh, she had gotten on the bus as uh, fresh out of high school and came out to California and did what she had to do. Uh, th this is like real, real life when you see kind of the the things that people parade is, you know, overcoming adversity in the present day, it's compared to even a few decades ago. It's, it's vastly different. So she had skin in the game, but she also, I found out, had powers in what I call the world of the unseen. So we had a number of anomalous, what I call synchronistic experiences, and that kind of opened my eyes. And she was also religious. She didn't practice. She didn't go to church. But she was. Her mother actually physically built a church, a little church with her own hands, in rural Mississippi. So she she read the Bible every night, and she did her own exegesis. And she became sort of my spiritual mentor and moral compass. And then uh, one night, she, uh, she just dropped dead. And that was like the major turning point in my life. Everything kind of relates either happened before or after that. And there's nothing to prepare you for that experience. Obviously, it's, you know, something that you were not prepared for. And I guess, you know, after that initial shock, how did you begin that grieving period and how did you continue forward on your journey and what was something that motivated you to keep going well i, I kind of divided it into two time frames there was the immediate time frame in kind of the days and weeks sort of after the event uh and so the first week i just spent preparing you know for the memorial service and everything uh, then after that, I'm alone in this big house. And like I said in the book, uh, felt like a cork in the ocean. And uh, I had some thoughts, you know, about pulling the plug. But my uh, daughter, who I was very close to, she would check in with me regularly. And I decided that that wasn't the time, you know, maybe later, but not right at that time. And then um, my wife and I, we had known a psychic for a number of years. And that's a whole nother story. And I'm, so I was a hardened skeptic and I'm certainly not here to try to convince, convince you or your listeners on uh, that whole subject matter. But suffice it to say, I was, um, I, she, she had some abilities and I came to the conclusion that while most people advertise themselves as mediums or psychics or intuitives, either don't have any special skills or just have a fraudulent enterprise, there's a tiny percentage that have information that they get to unexplainable means. 
and that's valuable information. And so I decided to take advantage of it. And so she would, we had some sessions and basically I came away and reconnected with my wife and came to my personal conclusion that love can survive physical death. And that was the, that got me through the first stage. Then the second stage was the long-term again. Uh, what do I do with this? How do I live my life now? Uh, what does it all mean? Uh, like the cliche goes, if life doesn't get your attention, death will. And so I, I went to grief counselor, but I was always more self-directed. And she said, I'm doing well enough on my own. I should continue on that path. I studied that. I um, uh, did meditation. I, I'd been raised as a Catholic, but fell away, you know, in college and throughout my adult life. Uh, but I studied Buddhism, uh, Judaism, and eventually uh, came back to my practice of Catholic faith. Uh, and then uh, I decided to continue on in business. I had taken months off and fortunately had an understanding partner who kind of um, carried the load, but our, our business was going to shed in the meantime. And uh, we got that stabilized and then uh, became involved in a large development project in San Francisco, a $400 million mixed use project, which was the biggest deal of my life and, and became another story. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you were uh, an alcoholic during your first marriage? Or well, you pretty, pretty much. Uh, my, my <laughs> I grew up in this little town and that had 5,000 people and 40 bars, which is, is a ratio probably you'd have to go to, you know, Russia to find. <laughs> and so I just, that was the world I grew up. My dad drank, you know, wasn't, the, you were a heavy drinker. The, the word alcoholic wasn't, was just starting to enter sort of the, uh, the vernacular. And all, all the, the men in town, they'd go to the bar and get drunk and come home and fight with their wives. And that was literally till I moved away. I, I thought that's pretty much how life was. <laughs> so I drank, you know, I started, uh, in, you know, drinking in cornfields when I was 12 and I went to the University of Wisconsin. So drinking was not hard to do there. Uh, if, <laughs> If you know the school, you may have played them in hockey, you know, and it yeah, just kept it was, it was just part of my life. And then uh, as I got into business and the deals got bigger and I was traveling internationally and everything, it, you know, got worse and worse. And then there was an event. Uh, I, I had an affair, you know, and it devastated my wife. And but she said she'd give me one more chance, which is probably more than I would have given myself. And, and so I, I, I said, I'm going to change my life. And I did. How long ago has that been? How long have you been sober? Well, I, I didn't, I didn't, my dad, he went cold Turkey. Okay. And uh, he, it was better for him and for his family and for everybody else. But he, 
he just turned inward. He became kind of a recluse, just sat in his chair. That was, uh, it left the hole that he didn't know how to fill. So, uh, and so I went to a council, was very, very sharp person. And he said, you know, cold turkey works for some, but not for others. AA is great. But again, you know, you have to find what works for you. So I adopted what I call the program of controlled moderation. Uh, I would go days without drinking. And then if I felt I want to have a beer, uh, I'd have one, maybe two, and then just cut myself off. And that way, it, it wasn't like I had this gap and felt, gee, life was better living drunk than living sober. And I've done that ever since and just drink moderately from time to time. And that worked for me and it solved my other problems. So, Do you have any advice for anybody that's struggling with addiction or, you know, what helped you get through that time? And then also one question is when your second wife passed, did you have any thoughts of getting back into drinking heavily or consistently? Well, obviously, when, when she passed, I was drinking, so I, I continued to do that, but it, it doesn't help. Well, well no, it, we, it was actually three, about three, four years before she passed that, that I um, got back on the program. And so after, after she passed, I didn't lapse. I still maintained. So... But it's it takes uh, it takes a certain measure of willpower, but it also takes uh, you know the the mindset that again uh, you 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 don't make it so if if you have to make it such a struggle or you lapse uh, you need to get other you're thinking right in other ways so you don't look at it that way anymore and some people are it just varies by the individual. Kind of moving forward from that, obviously, you, you know that you have gone through a lot and overcome a lot. Is that kind of what helped you decide that you wanted to become an author and write your own book? Well, I, I don't want to do a spoiler alert. You know, listeners just have to read the book, The Other Side of Success, uh, to find out what happens. But suffice it to say, uh, in, we, we had our major project, uh, the financial crisis hit. Things happened on the other side of the world that affected us. Uh, and I got out of the business uh, about eight years ago. But uh, fortunately, was able was able to uh, not have to work, <laughs> at, least, at least for a while. So I wanted to do things that I didn't have time before. And I always wanted to be like an artist. I, I just felt that was my calling. So I started doing some writing. I wrote some uh, essays. I wrote some screenplays. And then uh, a few years ago, I was working with a developmental editor. And she kind of knew my life at that point. She said, you know, you, you've had some experiences. And also the characters, you know, um, they're pretty interesting. And, so I came to the conclusion that uh, I, I would try to write the memoir and make it as truthful as possible. And what I came up with, the stories and the characters were 
frankly, more interesting than what I could was able to conjure up in the fictional world of screenplays. I mean, when you really get to the story, you know, you're not, you know, just the, the temple stuff and sci-fi, but, you know, the real story. So that was the book. And then uh, uh, it took a year after that to get it ready to be published. And so now I'm looking for my next project. Yeah, I'm sure that won't take too long. You've, uh, you've accomplished quite a bit, but they say that's, uh, you know, the best way to write like comedies too, is just to, you know, find funny things in your life. And I'm sure that writing about, you know, true stories made the book that much more passionate because, you know, creating something in your head is fun, but you know, there comes a point where, you know, you kind of run out of creative juice when it's, when it's about things that you've actually experienced and you kind of go back and see, you know, how it shaped your whole life. I'm sure that was a, you know, a really fun journey for yourself as well. Yeah, and it, it took time because it covered kind of a large time span. So I had to interview people and I had to interview family members and it got pretty sensitive. Uh, if you're not going to hold back, you know, it's so, yeah, but every, everything worked out fine. My, my first real reader was my uh, grandson <laughs> who was uh, then uh, 14. Uh, he's a smart, uh, very sharp kid. He reads all the. He was just finishing uh, Stephen King's It, which is like thousand pages. Now he's reading Crime and Punishment. So, but anyway, he read it and he gave it the thumbs up for the family. And <laughs> well, Sean, no, uh, I'm starting to get back into reading here, so I'm I'm going to add it to the list, and I can't wait to to check it out and, and give you my thoughts. I've read uh, the first couple pages so far, and I think it's very fascinating. Um, but we can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been great to hear about your story, um, you know, your heritage and, and your culture back in, in Ukraine and your life experiences here and turning your, your goals and dreams into a reality. And I think it's something that hopefully our listeners can resonate with. And we appreciate you being so blunt and honest about your journey thus far. Uh, thanks so much, guys, for having me on. I really appreciate it.